Y'all warm enough? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I thought we ought to just hop right into it tonight. So, uh, Glenn, why don't you just stand up and pray for us, man? Suffice it to say that Mondays are often the highlight of the three of our weeks. Uh, we're a little sick this evening, but the word is going to be good. Tonight we'll be covering the first four chapters on Hezekiah. That's not quite right. The first of four chapters on Hezekiah. We're going to be in Second Chronicles 29. And its pertinence to our time is rather astounding. Look, I don't know if you realize what's happened, but we are now in our 40, our, sorry, 34th session on the books of First and Second Chronicles. Tonight might be the best yet. Hezekiah is the 14th king in the Davidic dynasty, if you count David. He, of course, had a faithless dog as a father and his predecessor. But he also had a few reasonably good people that went before him. Men like David, Solomon, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jotham. Look, much debate always surrounds those kind of lists. That's really not our point as we begin. The point is, anybody that ever makes one of these lists always puts Hezekiah on it. He is a standout good king. We literally have no more desire left in us to discuss faithless Ahaz. So we are not going to spend our time reviewing. We're not going to talk about the way that he sacrificed his children. And became synonymous with spreading Gehenna or hell on earth. The way that he paved the way for today's generation to sacrifice their children on the altars of secular success in universities. We're not going to discuss the way that he brought the temple of Assyria's altar into the house of the Lord. Paving the way for our mega monstrosities to adopt worldly marketing schemes in the name of advancing the kingdom. We're not going to talk about stuff like that. We're certainly not going to discuss how Ahab made synchronicity with Samaritan practices prevalent that they carry on today in the way that our families relate to members during the holiday times. We're not going to talk about that. (laughs) We're not even going to review why it may have been a good thing that is carnal, compromised church, I mean temple, closed the doors in the way it's eerily similar to the circumstances of our time. We're going to spend no more time discussing things like that. Tonight, we're going to move on to much better things. To give us 
an overview. We're going to have Miss Jen read Second Chronicles 29, and then we'll get started <laughs> with a few comments and go verse by verse. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. Yeah. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side, and said, Listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now, and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, our God, and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the portico and put, up the, put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn. As you can see with your own eyes, this is what our fathers have fallen by the sword and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. Amen. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. Then the Levites set to work from the Kohathites, Mahath, son of Amasai, and Joel, son of Azariah, from the Mirites, Kish, son of Abdid, and Azariah, son of Jahahel, from the Gershonites, Joha, son of Zimna, and Eden, son of Joha, from the descendants of Elzaphan, Shimri, and Jael, from the descendants of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mataniah, from the descendants of Heman, Jahil and Shimiah. From the descendants of Jeduthun, Shemiah and Uzael. When they had assembled their brothers and consecrated them, they went in to purify the temple of the Lord as the king had ordered, following the word of the Lord. The priests went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it. They brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple everything unclean that they had found in the temple of the Lord. The Levites took it and carried it out to the Kidron Valley. They began the consecration on the first day of the first month, and by the eighth day of the month, they reached the portico of the Lord. For eight more days, they consecrated the temple of the Lord itself, finishing on the sixteenth day of the first month. Then they went to King Hezekiah and reported, We have purified the entire temple of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the table for setting out the consecrated bread with all of its articles. We have prepared and consecrated all of the articles that King Ahaz removed in his unfaithfulness while he was king. They are now in front of the Lord's altar. Early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and went up to the temple of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven male lambs, and seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. 
The king commanded the priests, the descendants of Aaron, to offer these on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Next they slaughtered the rams and sprinkled their blood on the altar. Then they slaughtered the lambs and sprinkled their blood on the altar. The goats for the sin offering were brought before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. The priests then slaughtered the goats and presented their blood on the altar for a sin offering to atone for all of Israel, because the king had ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all of Israel. He stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way prescribed by David and Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan, the prophet. This was commanded by the Lord through his prophets. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priests with their trumpets. Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offerings on the altar. As the offering began, singing to the Lord began also, accompanied by trumpets and the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship while the singers sang and the trumpets played. All this continued until the sacrifice of the burnt offerings was complete. When the offerings were finished, the king and everyone presented with him knelt down and worshipped. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and worshipped. Then Hezekiah said, You have now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. The number of burnt offerings the assembly brought were 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 male lambs, all of them for the burnt offerings to the Lord. The animals consecrated as sacrifices amounted to 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep and goats. The priests, however, were too few to skin all of the burnt offerings, so their kinsmen, the Levites, helped them until the task was finished and until until other priests had been consecrated. For the Levites had been more conscientious in consecrating themselves than than the priests had been. There were burnt offerings in abundance, together with the fat of the fellowship offerings and the drink offerings that accompanied the burnt offerings. So the service of the temple of the Lord was reestablished. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. Come on. Well, now that you have heard 2 Chronicles 29, you might make a note pretty similar to 1 Chronicles 29 where David acknowledged Solomon as king and they built the temple. That's something worth going back and looking at. I imagine it's very intentional on the part of the chronicler because it's being re-established. Hezekiah represents a reset. One that was badly needed then and is badly needed now. Tonight, we probably won't get into Isaiah's prophecy so often quoted in December. For unto us a child is born. And how it relates to Hezekiah. But we will be thoroughly examining this chapter as it relates to our times. I want to set a theme for you tonight. Is that alright? Yes. This comes from Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10. 
in bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy, say makes, makes, makes men holy, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Amen. There are many parallels between Hezekiah and Jesus. They are making men holy. They are reestablishing what should have always been and was lost by some faithless generations. Both the people in Hezekiah's day and us need to be made holy. Us, the three of us up here along with you, are looking forward to being made holy yes. tonight. Yes. Amen. As is our tradition, we're going to work line by line through the text, and we'll see what the Spirit speaks to us. Brother Lentonius, would you catch the very first verse for us? Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. Now, on other nights, we've covered the significance of him being 25 years old. There are a lot of notes here that we could delve into. What we want to begin by pointing out is that there's a Hebrew phrase here that's not totally unique to Hebrew, but it is interesting as it differs from our understanding and how we typically say things in English. We have a slide for you as we get going. Roughly, this transliterates to Hezekiah, king, son, 20 and 5. In the Greek, it's very similar, but a little easier for our minds to understand. Was a son, being 20 and 5 years old, Hezekiah? The idea here is that when they're speaking, they're saying, I am a son. Whether you're 20 or you're 50, the way that you enumerate your age in Hebrew thought is, I have been a son for X amount of time, i.e., from the day that you were born to your father. Now, as we're pointing this out, the verse goes on to mention his mother's name. But while it's saying he's been a son of 25 years, it fails to mention his father's name. In fact, Ezra intentionally omitted it in Hezekiah's intro. There are two ways to be a son for someone in a Hebrew biblical culture. The first is to be born to them in the natural sense. Like all of us are familiar with, you're a son of whoever you were born to. The second, though, is to be like them through discipleship, teaching, and instruction. To be like someone in imitation. Now, with this in mind, as we go from verse 1 to verse 2, it ought to change the way that we read the coming verse. The very least highlight a factor here for us. Brother Linton, would you get verse 2? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Amen. Now, notice it doesn't mention Ahaz. Because he did not do what Ahaz did. Right. Ahaz is not getting any credit for this Come on. because Hezekiah did differently. Yeah. Let's hand out a few verses to help illustrate our point. Emmy, you take Matthew 5, 48. Nick yeah. Rosales, John 5, 19. Paul Rosales, John 1, 12 through 13. JJ, you're going to take John 8, 41 through 44. Glenn, you take Romans 8, 12 through 17. <coughs> Jennifer, you're going to take 1 Corinthians 4, 15 through 17. And Steve Thomas, Titus 1, 4 through 5. 
Go ahead and read Matthew 5, 48 when you got it. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, Jesus is commanding, be what your heavenly Father is. Sons imitate their fathers, and the Father helps the Son become what he is. That is the relationship between a father and son. And it's a very high goal. It's a very high goal for a son, like this young, to become what I am. But Jesus demonstrated this perfectly. Let's go to John 5, verse 19. Jesus gave him this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. Do you hear the Hebrew concept of Ben here? This is the most noble definition of sonship that you can find. It goes way beyond genetics. It strikes at the heart of representation of character. Jesus is the son of the father because he perfectly represents the character of the father. Where's John 1, 12? Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So in light of what we just heard in John 5.19, that this is the most noble, biblical definition of sonship. When it says we've been given the right to be called sons of God, this is not simply an adoption with a name change. This is an adoption with a character change. Yeah. In the sense in which belief in his name enables you to become like the one that was born of God. We're talking about the kind of belief that is trust-grounded obedience. Not merely acknowledgement of his existence. The demons in hell do that. But sons that are born in the character, body, and representation of work of the Heavenly Father. Come that on. is what we have the right to. Yeah. Who's got John 8, 41 through 44? You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not only to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, simply put, genetics play a secondary role in sonship. In this conversation in John 8, they're saying, look, Abraham is our father. And Jesus is saying, no, you do not do what Abraham does. Now, in the way the world is, genetics play a huge, huge part. But in the kingdom, everything flips. The larger issue is that you are a son of whomever you most imitate. Yes. So you can say that you're a son of whoever you want, but who are you imitating? In this passage, the Judean leaders are most imitating the devil. And therefore, biblically speaking, they are becoming sons of the devil. Their actions are showing who they are becoming like, no matter what they say. This is not a function of genetics, but of obedience, imitation, discipleship, or the lack thereof. You can say that they refused to be discipled by Jesus, and therefore... The devil was discipling them, and they were becoming just like he was. Who's got Romans 8, 12 through 17? Therefore, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if through the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, by whom we are to cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God, and the children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Now when a modern translation says you've received the spirit of adoption, the problem with that is that it relates to us simply a legal name change. It relates an acceptance of an unworthy thing, and they're just now apart. That is not the sense in which the culture communicates this. You have received a spirit that leads you into being his son. And because you are being led by that spirit, you are a son. Your actions testify to the nature of the Father. The Father's Spirit in you causes you to be what He is. That's a radically different view of sonship. The path of sonship always includes imitation of the Father's character, especially in difficult circumstances. This is how trust-grounded obedience and imitation actually work. The circumstances around you give you the opportunity to show that you are like the Father when you otherwise would not have been. Mm. This is the marker of a true son in the kingdom. It's not acknowledgement of his existence. It's not simply legally being given his name. It is taking on his character so that you are demonstrating his name. That is why Hezekiah is a son of David and not referred to as a son of Ahaz. Oh, come on. Mm. 1 Corinthians 4, 15-17. I'm going to read this one a verse at a time. Even though you have 6,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ, I became your father through the gospel. So tonight, we're a little tired. I'm not going to ask you open-ended questions. We're going to presume that we're in unity and you're with us. It's ridiculous to think that the Apostle Paul fathered genetically each of these children. That'd be a real problem. It's ridiculous to think that these people that he's referring to in a familial term, he gave his last name to, correct? Correct. So it must be that they were born as a son into the character that the Apostle Paul demonstrated through the gospel and the work of Christ in him. So that means that he's referring to them in this relationship because their character is like his own. Consider that as we read verse 16 now. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. Praise the living God. We serve a king who makes men holy and we are being led by the Spirit of God. Amen. Their character was like the Apostle Paul. And yet they were still in progress to the fullness of it, and he's still urging them, imitate. It's almost as if we are made sons, and we are in process of becoming all the way like the Father and like the disciple maker. Skip verse 17. Read it. For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. 
He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. See, every son in this passage had the character of the father. One son had progressed further along in it, and he's sending an older brother to help the younger ones along in the process. Listen, this Hebrew concept pervades the writings of both the Older and the Newer Testament. When you think back to disciples like Joshua, all the way up to this point, this is how the Bible presents it. A true son who has become like the father encourages his brothers and everyone else to imitate the one true father, thus making more sons of God. It's got Titus 1, 4 through 5. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and in Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, with what, Jesus, with what Judah just said, grasp these concepts. Jesus was the true son of the father. He was the first one who perfectly imitated his father. Paul was a true son because he imitated Jesus. He became a son because he imitated the son. He imitated Jesus, who is the image of the father. Do you see how Paul became a son in that manner? Yeah. Now, Titus was a true son. Because he imitated what he learned from who? Paul. Paul. He wasn't just being discipled by Jesus on the sidelines. He had an actual son in front of him that he was imitating. He was imitating what he learned from Paul and was able to carry it out in difficult circumstances. This is what discipleship looks like. And quite frankly, the word discipleship is becoming a little bit bastardized today. People all, all too often could say, I am being discipled by Jesus, or I am being discipled, being discipled through the internet. It is sonship. <laughs> that is the purest form of what it means to be discipled, like a father-son relationship. You ready to really have fun with it? Yeah. yeah. Who is older, Paul or Titus? Paul. How do you know? He's the disciple maker. Older's got not a thing to do with it. Mm. That's a good point. Titus could have been older than Paul <laughs> yeah. and become his son because he learned to imitate Jesus through Paul. Come on. Now, the truth is, is Titus was probably younger, but it's a giant assumption. We have to learn to define sonship like the Bible does. Otherwise, you end up in the position of the Pharisee going, dude, you're not yet 50, but that guy is fit to be your father. Yeah. <laughs> All of this was to say that genetically, Hezekiah may have descended from Ahaz. I mean, I don't like to admit it, but I guess if we did a DNA test, that's the truth. But he was not truly his son. No, Hezekiah was the son of David. Come on. I can relate to that for many reasons. Let's move to verse 3. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. Wow. Hezekiah knew that the temple was the house of God's name and character. That's what's at stake here. In more ways than one, he opened that up again to the rest of the world through his actions. That ought to speak to you. Come on. The Hebrew for repaired here is kazakh. He made the temple doors strong again. 
That's a mission for our time, friends. One that can never be accomplished by sons of this society. No, it will take sons of God that would rather die in a plague than close off the representation of God's character to mankind for fear of a plague. If you haven't guessed it, we're opposed to church closure for any reason. <laughs> At any time. Anywhere. Only faithless Ahaz would do such a thing. Come on. Let's get verse 4, Brother Linton. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east side. Wow. On the east side, huh? Come on, somebody east side. East side. The beauty of the Hebrew imagery associated with this verse is overwhelming. And it's easily missed. The temple and the tabernacle face east for a reason. Hezekiah starts by assembling the priests and Levites of God on the east side. Yeah. To help you with this idea, we want to cover a few scriptures on the east side. Somebody say east side again. East side. side. Come on, you're about to get the east side story. Ah. I'm going to need to see a lot of hands for this one. You ready? All right. We're going to get all of the Rosales brothers over here. Paulie, get Genesis 2, verse 8. Nick. Get Genesis 3, 23 through 24. Spencer, get Genesis 4, verse 16. Caleb, I saw your hand somewhere over there. Genesis 11, <laughs> 1 through 4. Who's next? Brother Tom, if you would get Genesis 13, 11. Nolan, Genesis 25, 6. Adam, Genesis 41, 6. Then Steve Thomas, Exodus 27, 13 through 15. Timo, Numbers 2, 3 through 4. Then Glenn, Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 2. Who wants the best one? I vote Linton. <laughs> Matthew 2, 1 through 2. Matthew 2, 1 through 2. It wasn't a hard choice. Look at that smile. I don't know how anybody couldn't love Linton. Talk to Lou after the meeting. <laughs> Who's got Genesis 2, 8? Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Man's original, man's OG habitation was the east side. That's where we were from. This direction is likely in reference to the Temple Mount. If you want to learn more about that at a later date, we will discuss the way that the entire Bible is centered around a singular mountain. Now, meaning man was on the east side of where God's throne was and would be. We started out on the east side of this story. Who has Genesis 3, 23? So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So the garden is placed, and when man is banished from the garden, which direction does he go? The sword is placed on the east side to guard the way back west. So the direction that mankind drifted Further and further through history was east. east. Who's got Genesis 4.16? So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Look, when Cain sinned, he moved even further east from God's throne. 
Must have been somewhere around New Jersey. <laughs> Genesis 11, 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Just to make sure it's not obscured with translation differences, as men moved eastward, the direction they were heading was further east. Keep reading. Let's see what they do. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. <laughs> and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now I know, as you came to this Bible study, you were help, hoping to hear about how in 2021, under a new presidency, we're going to ban bricks because they hurt people in the past. <laughs> but the point that I would like you to gain from this is that moving eastward, we see men growing in their rebellion against God. Yeah. And they happen to use bricks as their tool. At the Tower of Babel, men were moving eastward. This is the direction that is further from God's throne, beyond the Garden of Eden, beyond where we started with Cain, and it's getting increasingly worse. Who is Genesis 13, 11? And Lot closer himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Look, Lot sets out towards the east, and you know what happens there, right? Two eternal enemies of God are born. He ends up doing some crazy things with his daughters, but we're not going to get into that. It's yucky. Look, I'm sure Lot's sitting around wishing that Moses had written the Torah sooner so he knew not to go east. But I'm sure that if he did have the Torah, he would have done it anyway. Look, this direction is becoming associated with men moving in the wrong direction. Who's got Genesis 25, 6? But while he was still living, gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. So Abraham had children with Hagar, Sarah, and Keturah. But Abraham's sons that were not the promised heir went to live in the land of the east. It is the right road, but everybody's headed the wrong direction. East is like you should be on a one-way street, but you're going the wrong way. Genesis 41, verse 6. After that, the seven other heads of grain sprouted, thinly sorted by the east wind. While we are giving you a brief synopsis, a serious biblical survey will reveal the east represents the wrong direction. Over and over and over again. And in this passage, east is the direction that the wind comes from that scorches food for the living and causes pain and destruction upon the earth. Now, our righteous Father and those who are His sons are here to combat migration towards mass damnation. Amen. Mm. Amen. We're put on this earth to fix the east side problem yeah. because we've been born into a new kind of sonship in this house. Hallelujah. Who has Exodus 27, 13? On the east side, on the east end, toward the sunrise, the courtyard shall also be 50 cubits wide. Curtains 15 cubits longer be on one side of the entrance, the three posts and three bases. And curtains 15 cubits long are to be on the other side, the three posts and three bases. Everybody say there's hope for the east. There's hope for the east. Look, God put his tabernacle, 
His interjection into humankind, the structure he wanted built of patterned in the heavens, he faced it east. The whole story of the Bible is not one where God lets men keep going east until they fall off into some icy ocean. (laughs) He put his presence there to welcome those who would return to righteousness because they now hated wickedness. Think of what kind of God that is. He put his tabernacle facing the one direction that they would be turning from so that they can come from their wicked positions back to him and he would welcome them. Now with that in mind, think about praying through the tabernacle, starting from the east and moving west. You are always praying towards the direction God wants you to go when you are praying towards the tabernacle. Who's got numbers 2, 3 through 4? Under their standard, the leader of the people of Judah is Nashon, son of Amminadab. His division numbers seventy-four thousand six hundred. If only there was a righteous father with a kingly son. See, our father placed the kingly tribe. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Our father placed the kingly tribe, whose name means praise, in a specific place. Oh, come on. That tabernacle moved all over the place, but it always faced east, and he always put his kingly son the furthest east. He put him on the east side of the encampment because that's who would welcome and hasten the return of those that had drifted in the wrong Amen. direction, yes. but were coming back. Amen. Deuteronomy 1. I'm going to spare you, my friend. The point that we're getting here is Deuteronomy 1, verse 1. Anybody remember the Hebrew name for this book? Devarim. Devarim, the word of God. The Devarim came to the people of God while they were wandering on the east side of the Jordan. It's almost like when we were still sinners, his word entered our lives in the middle of the desert on the east side of the Jordan so that we might understand his law and his commands. Once you have come back from the east side, you begin to see God's desire for all mankind to return to his throne. In fact, we spend our life preaching the word that he spoke to us that others might have a chance to see our king. I'd like to take a look at Matthew with you. Which we hand it out as this narrative continues. Who has Matthew 2, verse 1 and 2? As you begin to read this and you're engaging with it, remember what set all of this off is Hezekiah began by placing priests on the east side of a courtyard to begin his purification. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Hmm. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Can you imagine being Mary and Joseph at that point? Where people are coming and they're saying we've come from the east. Can you imagine? They've come from the worst possible place. The furthest away from God's throne. The furthest away that they can go into sin. They are from the east and they're coming to him. Why? Because God said a star in the east. Woo! You see, Jesus was worshipped by men who moved from the east back to the throne of God because they saw a star that led them. When God's 
first son entered into the world, he sets a star in the worst possible place and says, come, I have sent a savior to you. Now, come on, is that good? Is it good that God goes to the worst possible place to send a savior? Look, this reminds us of something else. On another evening, we can discuss Paul's mention of this language in Philippians 2, 15 through 16, where you and I should shine like stars. Shine, baby, shine! Where we should be shining for the worst. But tonight is Hezekiah. Yeah. He is beginning the cleansing and restoration of the temple that represents God's name on the east side of the courtyard in preparation for next week's lesson, which has to do with evangelism and John 4. Tonight we have to do something before we get to evangelism in John 4. We have to cleanse and restore the temple, which relates to John 2 and John 3. Y'all want to dig in? Yeah. Linton, pick up in verse 5 and we'll get going. And said, listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Oh, come on. Get that stuff out of here. Look, before you ever get to the place of talking about evangelism, we have to start with consecration. I hear Carlos laughing back there because he has a very literal translation. So let me walk you through some of this. In the NIV, you have to remove defilement. In the NASB, you have to carry that uncleanness out. In the ESV, carry out the filth. In the Young's literal translation, bring out the impurity. This is the Hebrew word that is actually being referenced that nobody seems to want to translate. (laughs) You got to get that menstrual time out of here. Get rid of that menstruation. Get that ceremonial uncleanness out of here. It's a feminine noun meaning impurity. It specifically is the word for a woman's menstrual cycle's produce. It refers to the flow of blood during menstruation. This is a Bible class. And thankfully it's not a biology class. But God designed the female body to produce life. The cycle that a woman goes through represents the week of every month that life is not possible Because death is being purged from her. She's being cleansed. I want to look at the historical background of the menstrual filth that was preventing life from occurring that Hezekiah wanted to get out of the temple. Come on. Because it's enlightening. Hmm. Are you all ready for it? Yes. Judah's going to hand out a few scriptures. All right. (laughs) We're going to take the left side of the room this time. Our first one's going to be 2 Kings 17, 16 through 17. Mike, take that one for me. JJ, you're going to get 2 Kings 17, 24, all the way down to verse 28. Then we're going to do 1 Peter 5, just verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 5. Habibi, get that one for us. Actually, get 5 through 9 for me. Brenton, got a bonus. Second Kings okay. 18, 3 through 4. Marlon, you get John chapter 2, 13 through 17. Andrew Hayes, you get James 1, 
verse 21. Asad, John 3, 1 through 15, brother. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Somehow he got the lion's share. Mr. Lawhon, I'm going to have a verse for you to read, and you're going to do it in the middle of Asad's. You're going to hold on to Ecclesiastes 11, verse 5, and then we'll call on you for it. I think that's about as many as we're going to hand out for the moment. There it's a good one. thing that we're scripturally light. Yeah. 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 Clearly. <laughs> All right. 2 Kings 17, verse 16 through 17. On the topic of menstrual flow and what was found in the temple. They forsook all the commands of Oh, the how many, Michael? All the commands. They forsook what? All. Oh. Every? They didn't keep one of them? No. Keep going. Yes, sir. Of the Lord their God and made it for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves in an Asher bowl. Pause there for me again. Oh, Jesus. All right. <laughs> You guys are Bible students. It shouldn't be news to anyone in the room that Samaria had two golden calves that they said was the Lord. We've heard about some yucky things being done with Asherah poles, even some wicked grandmothers doing profane things with them. Woo! Menstrual flow kind of bad. Hear what happens in the next verse. They sacrificed their sons and daughters. Oh, I'm so sorry, Michael. You've got to keep reading back it. They bowed down. They bow down to all the stereo hosts. Ah, who's been through our celestial powers teaching? <laughs> we are openly worshiping the archons. Not even guised. Not under a specific name. We're just saying out and out the powers that are manipulating and ruling the earth. We want to worship you directly. Keep going, Mike. And they worship Baal. <laughs> Keep reading. They sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And that's pretty yucky. The northern kingdom, Israel, is who is in reference in this verse, which was destined to be a prince with God. Somebody say destined. 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 Somebody say called. Called. They were destined. They were called to be princes with God, and they fell short of their calling and were not chosen. They fell into such idolatry that they were no longer able to produce life. They produced death even in their own children. They claimed to worship the Lord, but were actually worshiping images made by men. At least that's an old thing. That's that doesn't occur thing. anymore. Nobody mislabels things and parades it around as if it's holy. You know, in doing this, they were also subject to the starry hosts or celestial powers. And it reached a point where they stopped guising it and just said they were worshiping the archons. Then they proceeded to kill their children and the possibility of another generation getting it right. Wow. What was intended to be a source of life had in years just prior to Hezekiah become a menstruation oh. flow of death. Unable to produce life. Understand that this is the backdrop to Hezekiah's purification. This is what's going on 20 years before he starts his purification. Who's got 2 Kings 17, 24 through 28? The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Abba, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled there in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. 
They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. Wow. It was reported to the king of Assyria. The people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them all, hmm. because the people do not know what he re- requires. Come on. Then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been in exile from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Man, the priest had been ignored, compromised, and they had become carnal, and the whole land was deported. As Hezekiah is king, the whole northern kingdom had been deported because the priests had been ignored and compromised due to Samaritan worship. And lions were eating the people. While Hezekiah is king, the whole northern kingdom is getting ravaged by lions. The Gentiles sent a Jewish priest back to teach the people so that the defilement could stop. They were tired of the people getting eaten by lions and they said, we have to do something about this. Look, Peter makes reference to this event in 1 Peter 5, 5-9. Who's got that? In its context, if the enemy is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, who does he get to eat? He gets to eat those that do not know what the God of the land requires. He gets to eat those that live in the land and wear a title but are not actually living like sons. Peter is warning against this. He's warning against sons in name only. He's telling you that you're vulnerable. Pride and idolatry as well as the casting off of guidelines given to us through the elders, they've always been a threat to what was intended to be the source of life to all. This northern kingdom was called to be a prince with God, a life-giving flow, a fountain to the nations. And it had become a menstrual flow. When this menstrual corruption exists, you become vulnerable to roaring lions that devour you. The cleansing involves a few things, according to Peter. Being sober-minded. Why do we examine our hearts? Why do we ask the Lord to search us? Why do we begin knowing that we are east of the tabernacle and working our way back through the gates of praise and arrive at an altar? We're trying to gain sober judgment so that we can do what Peter says. Stand firm in what we're taught. Amen. Come on. And resist this flow of death that has filled the house of God with filth. It's all around us. And the lions are eating the Samaritans 
all around us. Yeah. It's time for cleansing to begin Amen. on the east side of the courtyard. Somebody has to stem the flow because God's house is supposed to produce life. Second Amen. Amen. Kings 18, 3. We're going to pick back up with Hezekiah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. Nehushtan. <laughs> Nehushtan. Whatever it was, they named it. And we're going to look at that together. Very interesting. Does it mean a little more to you when you hear that Hezekiah was the son of David in light of his background? In light of the world's corruption around him? This is the parallel account to what we're reading right now. In Hezekiah's time, they had taken a bronze serpent that Moses made, and they made it into an idol and worshipped it. Then they gave it a pet name. That which was intended to bring life during Moses' day had been corrupted by a yucky menstrual flow and only produced death. Why would Hezekiah be breaking apart something that Moses made? Something that God prescribed? Man, it's interesting the degree to which that menstrual flow can corrupt the things of God and turn it to idolatry. People's propensity to take what was intended for life and turn it into a menstrual flow of death is astounding. Now, if we think that's just the world around us, we'd be fools. Our propensity to think things that should be life and turn them to death is astounding. Think about the life-giving flow at the cross, what it did for us, what it means, versus the idolatry of a crucifix on a wall around a necklace. They're quiet. Explain it. Anybody ever have a grandma with a cross around her neck? Anybody have a relative who holds it while they pray? Anybody who knows somebody who treats it like a lucky charm before a game? When you want something, you're crying out to God about it? The cross of Christ is a bloody cross that redeemed us. And it is a reminder of the sinful death that we must die every day killing that old man and yet it has become something of a totem that is carried around man God did something powerful on it and yet our own sinful nature has turned it to a trinket it's our statement of faith I wore just Jesus bracelet I wore a necklace that had a cross on it we pick up totems of idolatry that once were something holy and righteous well the Israelites were no different here They took something that is a shadow and type of Christ that we will get to later. And they turned it into an idol and gave it a name as if it's a foreign deity. I promise you this is going on all around you with church buildings, advertisement, vehicles that are designated pastor or apostle. We're watching these things happen. They managed to lose the entire book of Deuteronomy. But they did not lose... The bronze pole with a snake on it that they named Nehushtan. We cling to religious imagery, religious names, far better than we cling to religious truth. 
I would say Nehushtan's going on all around us with people that say that they're Christians because they can say uh-huh to a few statements they agree with, but they don't live. It'd be easy to pick on the Catholics here. I mean, that's like, you know, picking on somebody on a short bus. <laughs> to hold a cross up with Jesus dangling from it as a religious icon without having taken up that cross yourself and becoming a son of God in true obedience like him is every bit as much of a minstrel flow as anything that they did. And Hezekiah set out to purify that. Look, the chapters of John are going to be illustrative to us. Look, the chapters of John follow the pattern of Hezekiah that will emerge from our time in Chronicles. As we get into the four chapters of Hezekiah in Chronicles in the coming weeks, you're going to see that they correlate to the book of John. In John chapter 1, we see the introduction of the king, just like in Chronicles chapter 29. In chapter 2, we see the cleansing of the temple, like Hezekiah is about to do. In chapter 3, we see the correcting of Jewish leadership in the book of John. His name was Nicodemus. And in chapter 4 of John, we have the woman at the well and them asking, Jesus saying, ask the Lord that he send harvesters into the field. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? You want to get into it a little bit? Who's got John 2, 13 through 17? When he was almost dying for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now pause right there. What is about to happen in Chronicles? What time of the Jewish calendar is it in Chronicles when Hezekiah is doing these things? It's Passover. The whole next chapter is about the Passover. Cleanse the temple in John 2 and and correct the leaders in John 3 and then evangelism in John 4. But in John 2, when he's cleansing the temple, it says that it is about the time for Passover. In 2 Chronicles 29, they're cleansing the temple. And do you know what 2 Chronicles 30 is? Passover. Keep going. In the temple court, we found men selling cattle, sheep, and goats, and others sitting at tables and changing money. So he made a, a white out of horse and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He is cut off the coins of the money exchanger and overturned their, their tables. Uh, to those who sold those, he said, Get these out of here. Get that who are, who are you, uh, who, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? The disciple remembered that it is written, Sell for my house will consume Now get this. The Jews had turned the temple, which was supposed to be a source of life, into a menstrual flow of death that was causing death for everybody that went in there. Probably why Isaiah wrote that their righteousness had become like filthy menstrual rags in God's sight. And then Jesus goes in to cleanse the temple, just like Hezekiah is about to do. And his disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. Who wrote that? Hezekiah's father, David, wrote it. Just like his father, David, Hezekiah has the same zeal and says, no longer will I allow this menstrual flow to come out of a source of life. Look, next time we are together, Hezekiah will initiate 
a Passover. In preparation for that, tonight you will see him cleansing the temple. The similarities between Hezekiah and Jesus are numerous. Hezekiah cleanses the temple. He cleanses the east side. Jesus goes into the east side to cleanse the temple. And Jesus will come from the east side again and cleanse the whole Amen. thing again in the future. Yeah. Look, whether we are talking about Samaritan compromise, Judean corruption of truth, or the introduction of financial gain into our worship, the scripture compels us to do as James 1.21 says. Who has that? Get rid of all moral filth. I wonder what James had on his mind. Since Hezekiah is a son of David, not Ahaz, just like the first chapter of John teaches us, we can become the son of God supernaturally. Since Hezekiah cleanses the filth from the temple, just like John chapter 2 demonstrates Jesus did. Since Hezekiah purifies the priesthood, just like John chapter 3, which mentions both Nehushtan and a Judean leader named Nicodemus, I think we are to take a minute and talk about John 3. Is that all right? Everybody can quote John 3.16, but very few people can put into context the first 15 verses because it is the time period that we're talking about right now. Who has that? there for me a sub. Notice at this point, three verses in, Jesus is emphasizing the need to be born as a son to enter the kingdom. Remember, the son imitates their father because the spirit of God enables them to and is making them holy as they are led by the spirit of God. Yes. It's almost as if he's retreading a certain kind of ground here. Read verse 4. Nicodemus clearly didn't get what was going on. He was seeing with natural eyes. He was thinking Jesus was talking about a genetic fatherhood. But his understanding was as devoid of life as the menstrual filth that contaminated the temple in both Hezekiah's day and Jesus' day. Correction and cleansing is what was needed. He could not see because he needed a correction and cleansing of heart. Verse 5. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. We can exegete this verse. We can show you line by line exactly what it means, but rarely is it ever put in its historical context. Based on what you're hearing tonight, a son is more than genetic offspring. A true son is one that operates in the same spirit as his father. 
That's what's being said to Nicodemus, and it's about to get better than that. Mm. Let's do verse 7. Get 7 and 8 for me. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, like with almost every statement that Jesus or the Apostle Paul made <coughs> that sounds strange or cryptic, it's based upon a wealth of information that comes from the preceding books. Yeah. Brother Rick, would you mind reading Ecclesiastes 11.5 so you can elucidate to us what Jesus is talking about? Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. See, the point here is that the leadership in Jerusalem is genetically related to their forefathers. They are descendants of David and Hezekiah genetically. But they have no idea how to be true sons of God. They're actually more like Ahaz because of their behavior and lack of leading by the Spirit instead of Hezekiah. And it wasn't because they didn't know the right things to say. In fact, the man that Jesus is talking to had the book of Ecclesiastes memorized. Yeah. What he didn't have were the deeds in his life that showed sonship so that he could be staring at a son of God and not know who he was talking to. Let's pick up in verse 9 of chapter 3. How can this be? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. And we testify what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not, you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you, if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Now tell me, when is the last time that that object was mentioned in the Scripture? Oh, Hezekiah's day. When there needed to be a cleansing of the temple. When there needed to be a new understanding of what it was to be a son. When there needed to be a correction of leadership. When there needed to be a new set of letters going out to call all of Israel back to the true faith. Come on. Now think about where that snake was first introduced for a second. Whenever the Israelites were in the desert, they grumbled and complained, and they were being bitten by snakes. And then Moses made this bronze pole with a snake on it, symbolizing their condition. They got bit by snakes. And what does bronze represent in the Bible? Judgment. 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 When Moses held the pole up, they were able to look at that and go, Oh my gosh, I am snake bitten. I am being judged. I need to be cleansed. And therefore they were able to repent. How crazy is that? That that became a symbol of idol worship instead of the true source of life. And the same thing is happening in Jesus' day. The Judean leadership would have to recognize that they were snake bitten, sinful and compromised so that they could repent and be saved. Jesus tells Nicodemus, when I am lifted up just like that snake, I will draw men to myself. They had to reduce that truth to a fetish. 
because they did not want to look at the judgment they were under. Like the truth of the crucifixion becoming a totem called a crucifix. Good thing that that doesn't occur today. We don't take three spiritual laws and tell somebody that's all they need to do to inherit the kingdom. We don't take something designed to revolutionize your life, make you examine your own character, repent of everything so that you can become like your father and reduce it to a few simple rules to increase church membership. I'm glad these problems were back then and not now. I'm glad nobody walks around today with a symbol of the salvation of the world around their neck as if it were jewelry. I'm glad these things have gone away and don't exist among the believing community now. You know where I see that the most? Is people will talk about messages that really just, you know, change them. Like, oh, you know, when you preached Grapes of Wrath, man, that was, that was a fiery word. And man, that did something in me. And then they go around and say, my favorite message is Grapes of Wrath. And yet they are not implementing what that message was supposed to change in them. Look, in Jesus' day and Hezekiah's day, there were elements of truth in everything that they did. Everything they did as a society had elements of truth in them. But what came from them was a lifeless menstrual flow. Church, what is coming from you tonight? Are the things you're carrying around producing life inside of you? That is why we're supposed to bind the word to our wrists and to our foreheads. Not literal boxes and not literal phylacteries, but have it written on our hearts and talk about it everywhere we go. See, when they become trinkets, when they become totems, when your leaders let them become that, then Jesus Christ would rebuke the leaders, he would cleanse the temple, and he would work the hearts of the people so that they could imitate the Father. He was never interested in you simply carrying around Nehushtan or a few scriptures that you could quote but were not living or a Christian t-shirt or your church attendance. He wants sons that actually carry the name of God in their character and he will have them. He raises up men like Hezekiah, men like Jesus, men like the Apostle Paul, men like many of you in this room to call the whole nation to repentance. The deceptive part about this is the pole itself and the bronze serpent on it, they were not wrong. Mm -mm. The way the people were relating to it was wrong. You can have a message that says God is forgiving and that is not wrong unless the people are not doing what is required to be forgiven and you're telling them God is forgiving. Do you you see how this works? When we reduce the things of God to simple axioms, God is always loving. God is always forgiving. God only wants people to be saved. That sounds right because there is an element of truth in it. But he did not want somebody like somebody that he destined for destruction because of their behavior to be forgiven. And see... When we preach a truth out of its time, out of its actual application, we become false prophets. Yeah. Wow. Sons don't do that. 
they imitate their father. This is why Peter can look at Simon the sorcerer and say, pray and perhaps God will forgive you. He didn't simply say, well, God is always forgiving. We live in a time where our nation is going to face judgment. There is no way around it. It's unavoidable. The false prophecy that you will hear will not be that people are not quoting scripture. It's that they're quoting scripture that does not apply to our situation. They will be saying that if we simply repent, no judgment will come on this nation, which was true in Isaiah's day, but was not true in Jeremiah's day. No matter what the people did in Jeremiah's day, they were going to face judgment. And now the way they glorified God and exemplified his character was to face that judgment well, saying just and true are your judgments. The whole book of Revelation is about that, and it's what the heavens are resounding. We're going to have to be made holy. We're going to have to represent the character of our Father as true sons, not just people with religious totems and statements. Jesus looked right at Nicodemus and said, You're Israel's teacher. What would he say to the men leading the body of Christ now? Hey, what is verse 6? Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary of, of the God of Israel. Wow. Unfaithful fathers extinguished the lamp of God for a generation. They closed the doors to the temple. Jesus said this to the leaders in his day. He said, your disciples are twice the sons of hell that you are. He also said, you not only don't enter the kingdom, but you put stumbling blocks in the ways of those who would. These were all men that could quote the scripture and live morally upright lives, but they didn't understand the workings of God any more than they understand the path of a wind or how a baby is formed in its mother's womb. As faithful sons, we're going to have to rise up. Amen. Yes. We're going to have to fan the flame of God's true lamp, which means you have to know his heart. We have to open the doors of the temple to everyone who is suffering in the east, not close them because we're pathetic cowards. Mm. This is more than celebrating Hanukkah. Do you, re- do you realize that Hanukkah celebrated in December is about oil that kept the lamp burning in the temple? Yeah. Do you recognize that? Yeah. It requires that we live Hanukkah, that we be virgins with oil in our lamp. Come on. That we kazak the doors of the temple, that we reinforce, make stronger, and show with our lives the very character of God, not carry around ridiculous religious totems that have become idolatrous. So consider something briefly before we move on. Whether church doors are opened or closed, whether someone professes a life in Christ or doesn't, what was in the temple was not the menorah that is in the tabernacle. It was ten of them. It was a light for every one of the 70 nations. The very hope in our day and time for the world at large is that the few remaining people of God can keep that fire burning bright. Come on. We will. 
We can have church doors that are opened or closed, but if the lampstand doesn't dwell there like the churches in the book of Revelation, there is no hope for the nations. Come on. But there is hope for the nations any time that we have men and women that inside of their temple have a light that is burning for the nations. We pick up in verse 8 and 11. Begin to contemplate how they cultivate this fire and this oil in their own life. Brother Linton, help us out. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. Wow. He has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. This is why our fathers have fallen by the sword, and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. Mm. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him, to burn incense. Come on. This started by them recognizing the problems in the past and renewing a covenant. And then he addresses them as my sons. How old was Hezekiah? 25. He says to the priests and Levites, my sons. You You think any of them were older than him? (laughs) Do not be negligent. Listen, we could introduce a long scripture string here, but we decided not to. We think it's more beneficial to simply meditate on the truth of these verses. And the great need in our time and our day to carry them out. You can see with your own eyes the sinful state of what is called the church at large all around us. They're getting eaten by lions. You can see the powerless nature of those who would pretend to lead us. Whether in a secular arena, political arena, or in the church at large. The powerless nature of those that pretend to lead us. You can see how captive to sin this generation is. Man, we were captive to sin 30 years ago, and it's increasing in an exponential way. Today, of all days, we must commit to being diligent and not negligent to the temple that we have been given. Come on, LCM. Are we going to be diligent? Yes. We. Somebody say we. We. We We are chosen to minister to and before the Lord. As his sons. In his character, in his spirit, and his body and representation of work. His actions to those dying under the scorching east wind by laying down our own lives like he did. Judah said something that we can't stop and teach, but I just want to illustrate it to you. Some translations say minister to. Some say minister before the Lord. Some go so far as to say on behalf of. I want you to understand that we minister, we serve the Lord. We minister to him. Minister means serve. And if we do that, then we also minister to others. But you cannot minister to others if you are not ministering to and before the Lord. It's not enough to know some true facts. You actually have to be his son. And that's how we represent him. We're about to get into a list of extraordinary sons. Yeah. Amen? Amen? Then these Levites set to work mm. from the Kohathites, Mahath, son of Amasai, and Joel, son of Azariah, from the Merarites, Kish, son of Abdi, and Azariah, son of Jehalalel, <laughs> from the Gershonites, Joel, son of Zimmah, and Eden, son of Joel, from the descendants of Elizabeth. Shimri and Jelido, 
from the descendants of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mattaniah, from the descendants of Heman, yeah. Jehiel, and Shimei, from the descendants of Jonathan, Shemaiah, and Uziah. Yeah. Look, those guys have some pretty funny names. We were uh, <laughs> listening to Chuck Missler today while we were studying, and he was basically saying as he read these names that they forgive him because they're listening to him pronounce his name. And then it struck us that he's standing with them right now. <laughs> Look, the Hebrew in these verses is repetitive and emphatic. I want to show you what it says in Hebrew in verse 1. It says in the English that they set to work. But in the Hebrew it says, Then the Levites arose. Amen. Come on, man. Yeah. They arose. The true sons of the Levites rose up. They stood up. They set to work to cleanse and restore the temple. Amen. Hezekiah is calling them, my sons, don't be negligent in this. The Lord is calling you, my sons, don't be negligent. Instead, be diligent. And the response is, you've got to rise up. Yeah. You have to stand up. You have to get up and set to work. Look, the sons imitate their fathers. Yeah. Hezekiah rose up in his time as king. And then the Levites as sons rose up to imitate their fathers. This is a resetting to the purity of earlier days. Can, can, can we hint at that just a little bit? All, all of you with Baptist backgrounds are going to love this. <laughs> the fermentation of the spirit in the time of the original fathers being referenced was being regained in their son, and it was showing up in power. When you hear Gershon and Mariites, this goes all the way back to what was happening with Moses, and something about Hezekiah was reigniting it in them again. I, I'm just going to quote you a verse that you can go study as much as you want, put it in your pipe and smoke it. It's Luke 5.39. And no one after drinking the old wine mm -hmm. wants the new. Mm. For they say the old is better. Yeah. Sometimes sons have got to rise up and go back to the original fermentation of Abraham. Yeah. Back to the original fermentation of when God gave this to us. Because everything that's coming out that is new is menstrual flow. Wow. But yeah. we're going to go to verse 15. They had assembled their brothers and consecrated themselves. They went in to purify the temple of the Lord, as the king had ordered, following the word of the Lord. The priests went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it. They brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple everything unclean that they had found in the temple of the Lord. The Levites took it and carried it out to the Kidron Valley. All right, so let's break this down for just a minute. Notice that they consecrated themselves prior to doing anything else. Wow, that would be a great start, wouldn't it? <laughs> Saints, we have a great vision. We have great hopes, great dreams, things that God has given us. Nothing will begin until we consecrate ourselves like the men of old have. God is calling us to elevate our consecration. Then they purified the temple. And they drug out the stuff that didn't belong. Man, that doesn't sound like a private matter to me. And they exposed it. If you don't consecrate yourself, how will you ever fix the problems of the community? Consecration in your own life allows you to see the change that must happen within the temple. That's good. If you don't consecrate yourself, 
All you end up doing is complaining about the community. You certainly can't fix it. Never heard anyone complaining or complaining about the state of a community while doing nothing about it and nothing to help the situation. But we're consecrating ourselves first tonight. We're going to purify the temple of God. You know what my favorite part is? The things that they drug out, they threw it into the Kidron Valley, into Gehenna. They literally took the things that were contaminating the house of God, that menstrual flow, and they personally sent it straight to hell. Come on, man. They were waiting for a final judgment. They were taking the judgment that God had placed in their hands, and they were throwing that menstruation straight into hell where it belonged. Now, we can't go through and teach that geography for you again, but you should remember it from last week. The Kidron Valley is intersected at one end by the Hinnom Valley. It's what Jesus refers to as Gehenna. It is the garbage dump in his day. At the north end of that valley is the Valley of the Rephaim. Well, if you have to discard of your menstrual flow somewhere, <laughs> let's give it back to the original contamination from the celestial powers into the human race. Yeah. <laughs> Look, these things must be done in this specific order. No other order, no other operation will succeed. We're going to follow the old pattern and the old way that has been laid down. It also cannot be accomplished without the phrase following the word of the Lord. We do not get to invent our own plans or own directives. We are going to tune our ears into our Father's commands and directives, and he will show us how to accomplish this. Hey, I'm going to read John 3, 20 and 21 so my brothers can comment on it. We keep bouncing back to John because we think that you would be benefited by examining the events of Hezekiah's life in at least the first four chapters of John. It seems to us that the Holy Spirit intentionally put a link there because the order of events is the same. And next Monday, Brother Justin is going to walk you through some of John 4 as it relates to a special evangelistic Passover that Hezekiah does. You guys remember the drug things out of the temple? As I read John 3.20, Brother Justin is going to tell us all about it. He's sitting over here. (laughs) Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly. That what he has done has been done through God. Look, simply put, if you say you love the truth, if you love the light, then you expose the dark deeds in your own heart. It's impossible to say that you are a lover of truth. It's impossible to say you're a lover of God or a lover of Jesus because he is light without exposing darkness in you. If you love the light, you have to hate the darkness because they cannot mix. And that causes you, the more you grow in your love for Jesus, i.e. the one true light that John called him, if you grow in your love for Jesus, you also grow in a love to expose the darkness. And that is what's going on here. Hezekiah is not looking around and complaining and saying, man, this is so sad. I can't go to the temple because there's menstrual garbage in there and it's filthy and nasty. I don't even want to be around it. No, he loved the Lord enough to have the people drag that crap out into the light. Let it be seen that this was done by God and then have a temple that is purified by the light. And it set off a chain reaction. Yeah. 
when you consecrate yourself, others go, I, I got that too. Yeah. It only becomes your defining feature if you don't drag it to hell where it belongs. Yeah. Yeah. Exposing it gives you the chance to drag it where it belongs and leave it there. Yeah, why don't we pick up in verse 17? They began the consecration on the first day of the first month. <laughs> day one! And by the eighth day of the, of the month, they reached the portico of the Lord. For eight more days, they consecrated the temple of the Lord itself, finishing on the 16th day of the first month. I want you to think about this, because we're probably in for a very long four years. Yeah. <laughs> that means that in 16 days of total devotion, they've cleansed away nearly 300 years of menstruation. Wow. Man. Wow. Wow. Do we have a good God? Come yeah. on. 300 years are being washed away in 16 days. What would the Lord do in your life with 16 days of total devotion. 16 days of purifying everything that you can find. 16 days of walking through your home with the menorah of God and rejoicing every time you find something unclean because He's making you holy. Realizing that in 16 days, every time you find something yucky, and you turn away from it, you're being sealed with the inscription, the Lord knows those who are His. How about your workplace? What if the next 16 days you examined every facet of your working life? I bet He could certainly cleanse away the kind of unclean flow that has kept you from being fruitful. How about our mission field? How many thoughts have we had? How many actions that were ultimately faithless, just in mind the things of men, scheming, trying to figure out how we can do it, that are menstrual rags? Would he cleanse away from us if in 16 days we devoted ourselves to this kind of purity? When you're asking something like that, realize that in 21 days... An angel broke through to Daniel and revealed to him hundreds of years of history. And we're still reading about it and trying to understand it. These were men just like you and I. But they weren't ordinary men. They were sons of God that rose up in the Spirit of God and connected with the Father and He did something extraordinary. And it is what is going to happen in this house. Look, the psalmist says, In His light, we see light. The more that you begin to get right, be diligent and not negligent and searching for those areas, the more you see light. And that becomes pretty pretty awesome. You get addicted to it. You get addicted to seeing more light because God shows you more the more that you're looking into His light. Man, that is... I bet if we all knew... How much further we would be in 16 days if we if we were very diligent doing that, we would get started on it right away. But there's a lot of us that is kind of fearful to do that, and it's because we don't love the light enough. But we're going to change that tonight, right? Amen. Look, as we get into this uh, 18th verse, 
I just want to encourage you. We're 14 kings into this. We're hundreds of years into this. And it turned around 16 days. (laughs) You can be crippled 38 years. You can be born blind. And you take the word of God seriously enough. And he will do so much in you that you get addicted to repentance. Come on, man. You get addicted to exposure. You start looking. I mean, you ever get to cleaning something really good? Yeah. And you can't stop? Yeah. I mean, our garage is the Valley of Gehenna. <laughs> and, and we stay away from it because it's, it's horrible. But once we start cleaning... We just can't stop. You start getting excited about what you can throw away next. We might need, as sons of God, to do the same thing with our life. And if we do, you're going to find whole new levels of intimacy rise up in you. Come on. You'll find yourself representing Him in ways you didn't know you could. That's what this is actually about tonight. Let's go to verse 18. They went in to King Hezekiah and reported we have purified the entire temple of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, Woo! and the table for setting out the consecrated bread with all its articles. We have prepared and consecrated all the articles that King Ahaz removed in his unfaithfulness while he was king. They are now in front of the Lord's altar. Woo! That 16 days give any of you hope? Yes. Gives me hope about what the Lord can accomplish in such a short time frame. From another perspective that honestly is closer to the reality of how we think. And any housewife in the room help me out? 16 days of cleaning? Does that sound like a pleasant task to you? No, in fact, in the moment, if you had 16 days cleaning a singular house, you might begin to wonder if it will ever stop, if this dirty laundry will ever stop piling up. 16 days of cleaning always feels as if... Too much is piled up for you to move the pile. You're just chipping away at a mountain and you're going to die before you see the light of day. See, there's a tug of war between the reality of the hope that God is bringing us and the daily discipline and fight that is required to agonize the good agony. These Levites, they didn't leave the closet. They didn't leave one station in the tabernacle or temple undone for later. They started from one end of the temple and went all the way through the house until they achieved their goal. Saints, if you're working in your marriage to grow to what Christ has called you to, if you're working with your children to grow into what Christ has called you to, if he's given you a task that you know is critical for your future, don't believe the lie of the enemy that is raging between our ears that you can't make it. Listen to me, those 16 days will go by faster than you think if you put your head to the work. Ahaz was a faithless dog of a man. But the response of heaven was to announce the birth of a faithful son of God. Come on, Jesus! The reality is most of us were born as Ahaz. But we're being born again as Hezekiah. You may have been a faithless son two weeks ago, but we can become Hezekiah here and now by putting our hand to the work. Listen, there's a pattern in the word. We see sinful Saul die, and then Samuel's given a word, fill your horn with oil. There is a new king coming, 
one named David. This pattern works throughout the word. Ahaz is now gone and a faithful son has been raised up like David. This pattern is firmly grounded in the word and it repeats even through the prophets. You've heard us mention Isaiah a few times. Isaiah 9 is something that is commonly taught in these days. And it speaks of a time that faithful sons will be raised up. Ones that will be raised up in the house of God and will reclaim what their fathers had lost. We are living in these days. Can, can we just uh, hint at for a minute when you get your Christmas card and it's Isaiah 9 and it's unto us a child is born and you're really excited about that? It is about Jesus. That's cool. That's not a problem. But before it was about Jesus, it was about Hezekiah. <laughs> and it was never about a singular son. It was about a son who would teach other sons to rise up Come in this. Mm. That's good. Let's do verse 20. Early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and went up to the temple of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven male lambs, seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary and for Judah. The king commanded the priests, the descendants of Aaron, to offer these on the altar of the Lord. Now, I know, like, some of you might view this as, like, a grade B slasher film. Yeah. This sacrifice is pretty unique. They bring seven bulls, seven rams, seven male lambs, and seven male goats. Look, there's a uniqueness to the sacrifice, and it's commented on in Jewish literature. Here we're going to pull up a slide, and this is Rashi saying... He's saying that this was a temporary provision, obviously, because this was not the normal... This happened, it was unique. He's saying, all the way down in verse 24, we have that? Yep. For they had sinned by practicing idolatry. The king said as follows, Let the burnt offerings and sin offerings be for all Israel. In the section of Numbers 16.24, it is written, The entire congregation shall offer up one bull. And it is written, Leviticus 4.14, And the congregation shall, shall bring a young bull for the sin offering. Look, all that was required to cleanse these areas is one bull. Or just one of the other animals, but what do they do? They want to bring more than what's required. They want to bring a perfect sacrifice. Not one that just stops at the standard, but one that goes above and beyond and says, I am really going to sacrifice to make sure that this is atoned for. This was done for the kingdom. Now the kingdom of God on earth in both houses of Israel. This was done for the sanctuary, the representation of God's name. And this was done for Judah, the leaders of God's people. The truth is, for all those things, one sacrifice would have been sufficient, but seven, a perfect representation of every kind of sacrifice was made. Yeah. Now, in those 16 days we're talking about, when you are looking for the areas to be diligent in and find out what needs to be taken into the Valley of Gehenna, how do you make sure that you are getting those areas right? In every area that you are not getting right, you look forward to making a supernatural, perfect sacrifice in those areas. Not stopping at the normal, not doing the bare minimum or the base requirement, but going above and beyond to sacrifice everything to get it right. And that is what these people are doing. Now, that's an extraordinary word for our day and our time. We need to search for the perfect sacrifice that Christ is calling us to make. 
on a broader spectrum, there's something I want you to get. I don't want it to preclude you as you're reading about this. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot ever atone for sin. But you know what Hezekiah is doing? He is working to make a perfect sacrifice for sin. It's almost as if a son of David in these days and times knew something was required and he's telling us about what Christ would do one day. And he would make a perfect sacrifice for Israel first that we might be included in. Now us, in the image of our Father, we're going to search for our perfect sacrifice. It goes way beyond requirement and straight into what you get to do. Come on. Do you hear that? If they were interested in requirement, then one would have been enough. They were interested in the fullest expression that they could possibly make. Let's pick up in verse 22. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Next they slaughtered the rams and sprinkled their blood on the altar. Then they slaughtered the lambs and sprinkled their blood on the altar. The goats for the sin offering were brought before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. Look, it's an hour and 40 minutes in. And uh, I feel like we are given a little extra time because we shortchanged you last week. Of course. <laughs> we probably don't have time to teach on this in its fullness. I just want to say that beautiful things happen when we own and repent from our sins. The high priest is the only one that has to lay his hands on this. But they all laid their hands on it. Have you ever been praying with brothers and they're repenting of something in their own life? And you're like, yes, me too. While they're dragging it to hell, you're like, oh, I'm getting in on that. I'm also dragging this to hell. If we can create in here a culture that is no holds barred, we're not concerned about somebody thinking less of us. We're concerned about leaving a remnant of menstrual flow in our lives. If we can do that, the whole world will see what we are, sons of God. When you fight to protect your image and you won't lay your hands on your sin, you obscure it in strange speech. Like maybe one time back a million years ago, I kind of sort of did something wrong. Nobody sees your progress. Nobody sees that you're an actual son. You're more like a Nehushtan. Like there's an element of truth in it, but it's mostly just religious idolatry. So what we're trying to do here is create a culture of sons. I'm not trying to be graphic. My kids walked in the room naked with me right up until last week. Okay? There's no shame because I'm their father. Whatever they are, they are. But they're becoming more. They're becoming better. The spirit of the father will help you. You do not need to hide anything. Come on. Okay? Let's, let's, Let's keep going so we can get to a couple other amazing things. Verse 24. The priest then slaughtered the goats and presented their blood on the altar for a sin offering to atone for all Israel. Because the king had ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. It's repeated twice in the verse. All. This unique sacrifice, this perfect sacrifice, was for all Israel. It's almost as if our life, consecration, and holiness is not just about us. It's about the community of God and the believers at large. Yes. We're going to keep rolling. Just meditate on that as we read verse 25 now. He stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, <coughs> and the way prescribed by David and Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. 
This was commanded by the Lord through his prophets. Now this ought to remind you of the fivefold ministry. Oh, come on. They are getting consecrated. They're consecrating the temple, but who are they doing it with the help of? The fivefold ministry that always existed. Amen. Now the next verse ought to remind you of the original methods of the church. Read verse 26, and you're going to read on down to 32. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments Come on. and the priests with their trumpets. Come on. Hezekiah David's David. instruments yeah. and the priests <laughs> with their trumpets. Great. If that doesn't remind you of Pentecost, you need to look more deeply <laughs> into that verse. We don't need any Assyrian altars. No. We need the old wine David had. Yeah. We, we need real priests. Yeah. And we need 120 men in an upper room. With trumpets. That's what we need. Keep going. Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offering on the altar. As the offering began, singing to the Lord began also, accompanied by, by trumpets and the instrument of, instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship while the singers sang and the trumpeteers played. All this continued until the sacrifice of the burnt offering was completed. When the offerings were finished, the king and everyone present with him knelt down and worshipped. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and worshipped. Wow. Then Hezekiah said, You have now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings and all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. We're going to pick up on something here in a minute, but I want you to understand that as they cleansed, <laughs> the natural feeling that came out of them was worship. <laughs> Free will. Come on. And, and I want you to get the difference between that and repenting so that you now feel good and are done. Ooh. See, this was going through the altar... And the labor so that you could be in the holy place. Amen. Not so that you could be done and do what you want to do. Do, do you hear the difference? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can come to church and, quote, get right with God so that then you can go out and do what you want to do. And that that is a menstrual flow. Yeah. Or you can come to church and as you're getting right with God, it only makes you want to worship come on. more. We're trying to get into the more. But there's something very good right here that we, we're going to have to get to. The number of burnt offerings the assembly brought was 70 bulls. How many? 70 bulls. Wow. 100 rams and 200 male lambs. All of them for the burnt offerings to the Lord. We've taught on 70 many times, so I'm going to put this on the screen and tell you it directly relates to that map behind us. Amen. The 70 nations of Genesis 10... There was a bull for each nation for a reason. The seventh feast over seven days. It, it was for the redemption of the nation. When the men consecrated themselves, when they got the temple right, their hearts and attention turned towards the nations. Come on. What you're going to find out, though, is read verse 33. The animals consecrated as sacrifices amounted to 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. I, I don't know if that's confusing to you. Did they bring 70 or did they bring 600? Well, they started with 70, which was one for each nation. But they went much further because of their willing hearts. 
And as a thank offering, they brought 600. See, they needed to bring one for each nation, but they brought far more than one for each nation. They started with 70 and then gave another 530. Come on. That's the heart in this house that we want to develop for the Come east on. side. Come on. Amen. Amen. Verse 34. The priests, however, were too few to skin all the burnt offerings. So their kinsmen, the Levites, helped them until the task was finished and until other priests had been consecrated. For the Levites had been more conscientious in consecrating themselves than the priests had been. <laughs> we want to walk through this just for a minute together. Our king, Hezekiah, initiated the revival and the reform. But it was the Levites who responded the quickest and in the greatest number. Every revival. Somebody say every. Every. Every revival in history has demonstrated that the average Levite becomes more conscientious than the existing priesthood. I want you to think through that with our denominations and how they started as opposed to what they've become. It was always Levites who responded to the king's revival in their life that caused them to come into contention with the existing priesthood that had become comfortable and lazy where they were at. Real revival is initiated from heaven, but is responded to from the lowest point on the ground up, and it affects the whole chain. Almost as if our God starts with ordinary fishermen and then begins to affect the entire nation as he goes. I'd like to read to you Psalm 85, 10 through 12. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed... Give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Not tonight, but next week, you're going to see the parallels between John's 4 and the harvest that is depicted there. That will come in the next chapter at this time next week. But for now, what we want to focus on is the cleansing and restoring of the temple as faithful sons that is required to get to the harvest that God has in store for us. Now then, let's pick back up in verse 35 and 36 to round us out. There were burnt offerings in abundance, together with the fat of the fellowship offerings and the drink offerings that were accompanied, that accompanied the burnt offerings. So the service of the temple of the Lord was reestablished. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people, because it had been done so quickly. Everybody say rejoiced. Rejoice. Rejoice. Because it was done so quickly. Well, a lot had to happen for it to be done so quickly, didn't it? A king had to initiate. Average Levites had to respond. They had to purify the temple. They had to purify their house. They had to consecrate the nation. And then, therefore, they start consecrating for the nations. Look, it says it was done so quickly. Think about that again. It took hundreds of years to corrupt what God had established. You remember you remember the short time ago that we were studying Solomon and how these things were how the temple was built for the nations, how there was 10 times as many things in the size of it and 300 years has passed and it'd been so corrupted. It'd been corrupted and only days of faithfulness and 
Losing the truth occurred in between. Look, that phrase at the end in Hebrew is hadabar bepit om. It means that the word suddenly came to an end. The thing suddenly came to an end. The thing that God wanted to happen, the word that was spoken through Hezekiah and the prophets, suddenly came to an end. You know what that means for us? Look, they rejoiced because it suddenly came to an end. That means they suddenly rose up to accomplish it. Man, how suddenly, abruptly, quickly do we need to act on this word? <laughs> Look, what God has in store for us right here tonight is an abundance of rejoicing. You know why? Because there's rejoicing whenever you search for the yeast inside your house. There's rejoicing when you can search for the yeast inside of the entire family of God because you know what that prepares you to do? Search for the yeast in the nations so that they might receive the same thing that we are receiving. Look, when that's your goal, when the nations are your goal like it was these men, no amount of sacrifice is too much for us. No amount of sacrifice is difficult. We look at the sacrifice and we're like, I am willing to make it because I know what it will produce. I am willing to make the sacrifice in my life to expose everything because I know what God can produce in me. I am willing to make the sacrifice in my family because I know what it will produce in my family. And I know that that will produce in the nations. Miss Joe, how, uh, how many years were you on the earth before you met that prince standing next to you and married him? Seventeen. Wow. Bosha, how many years were you on the earth before you met that amazing woman next to you and married her? Twenty-three. Twenty-three years. Seventeen years is a long time to wait, isn't it? How long did it take you, Bosch, from the moment that you said, I do, till you found yourself in a honeymoon suite? Hours. Ha debar bepitkom. The word or thing. Suddenly. The Bible has a unique phenomenon. You can wait hundreds of years and the Lord can say it's coming soon. It's not an eschatological debate. I'm telling you that when the word of God does take place... It initiates something immediately, yeah. even if it took a long time to wait for. Yeah. Look, you may have been yeah. waiting all of your life for the right moment to consecrate yourself and stand up as a son. But if that moment is now, then the thing will come upon you suddenly. Come on. Yeah. We have a responsibility when we hear a word like this. If before you didn't know, you didn't know. But now you do. And God expects it to happen suddenly. That means that no amount of sacrifice, no, no depth of cleansing is too much in comparison with the revival that you want to see. And when God anoints a thing, it comes suddenly, yeah. even if you've been waiting hundreds of years for it. I'm saying this to you because many of you are growing tired and waiting for promises. I remember watching John and Joy fight, waiting each month for a menstrual flow to go away and life 
to come forward. Except now from our perspective, when it did happen, it happened suddenly. And now we got a bunch of kids and more on the way. (laughs) That is what the kingdom of God is like. You can be suffering in, in the East for generations. And when the word or the thing happens, it is sudden, even violent. Mm. It advances. And you can initiate that with personal consecration yourself. Before we pray, uh, we've obviously come to the end of our teaching. We talk to you as family and sons in this house. Most of you have known me for a long part of my life. I can see in the eyes of women in this room, of men in this room, that you desperately want what these men just spoke about. And you're scared that if you respond to it, it won't happen for you. That suddenly won't actually characterize your interaction with the word that was just spoken. I pray I'm going to be praying that God's courage might help you do what you already know that he's drawing you to. No man can come to him unless his spirit is drawing you. And he's come as far as to be tugging on your heart at this moment, driving you forward. You have reason for confidence that he who begins a good work in you will bring it to completion. Yes. Father, I thank you for my family in this room.